And um, we are going to continue with our study of the Apostles' Creed. Um, I want to remind you now, we've got one more lesson with the Apostles' Creed. We, we began by talking about what the creeds are and why they are important, how they came about. We began part number one, um, usually called paragraph number one, which um, it was the God we serve. Then the longest session was about the Messiah that he sent. And uh, then we talked about the spirit that he poured out, number four. And tonight we're going to talk about the community he builds. Next week we will finish up with uh, the promise or, or the future that he has promised. And we'll talk about the resurrection and life everlasting. Um, this is a, a little different approach that we take to our Wednesday night teaching, but I, I hope it's been a profitable time for you. And then uh, the first Wednesday night in March, Pastor Corey is going to begin a series, and we'll hear a little bit more about that next week to give you a heads up. And uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be here, uh, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be a part of the congregation being taught and receiving and Corey's going to be teaching for a few weeks and that'll help me that'll help him in his new role he doesn't get to preach every week like he used to so I know what happens when a preacher doesn't get to preach and I don't want his head to explode so he's sharing Wednesday nights with me it's going to be a great time um, let's go to the Apostles Creed read it one more time I believe in God the Father Almighty the creator of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And now the next three lines are what we'll focus on tonight. The Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. And then next week, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. Now we want to talk about uh, three basic things tonight. Um, we want to talk about the phrase, the Holy Universal Church or, or the Holy Catholic Church. We want to talk about the meaning of the communion of saints and number three, the forgiveness of sins. Now those things seem so basic, but um, I, I guess I need to begin by somebody, uh, by answering a question that somebody asked me last week. They said, Pastor, churches are so different uh, in many instances, you know, they, one believes this, they baptize differently or whatever. How is it that all of these churches agree on the Apostles' Creed? Well, um, that's a very good question, and it shows the centrality of this creed. And I, I want to spend a little bit of time tonight helping you understand that uh, um, especially this thing called the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, depending on your theological background, you will, you will say you agree with the creed, but how you see it may be a little different. 
Um, can I just say this? Um, when, when, uh, when I was much younger, I took the approach that, well, that's not the way to interpret Scripture. Why would any church believe that? Or why would any church hold to that view? And um, to me, that's a no-brainer. I mean, it, it, common sense tells you that's not right. But if I could just take a moment to be kind, um, kinder than I was as a young man, um, churches that disagree with us on things usually don't disagree with us the way we think they do. There is a reason behind what they believe. And, and I don't agree with the reason necessarily, but I have learned that the world's not divided into two classes of people, uh, those that think like me and idiots. Um, uh, now, now I, I got to tell you this, and this is foundational, and this is kind of at the heart I want to talk about tonight. It's one thing for two Christians to disagree on something and still have a heart for Jesus. But the question is, is the disagreement an honest disagreement? You know, I talk to skeptics from time to time, and before the conversation gets very far, I ask them a question. I said, well, I, I can understand your skepticism. I can understand your questions. But I said, before I can talk to you any further, I need to know one thing. Are you an honest skeptic or are you a dishonest skeptic? And they, what do you mean am I an, an honest or dishonest skeptic? Well, an honest skeptic says, this is what I believe. If I'm wrong, I want to be shown that I'm wrong. Um, but a dishonest skeptic, it doesn't matter what you say to them. They're not going to believe. They're not going to agree. And that's true whether you're talking about politics or sports or theology. The question is, do you have an honest heart that is a teachable heart that can be corrected? Or are you, do you just have an argumentative heart? And an argumentative heart, uh, or, or let me back up, a heart that's wrong, it's okay to be wrong about something. It's okay to be an error about something. I mean, as long as it's not about the main question of Jesus. But it's different to be in error and to be a servant of a spirit of error. And that's a huge thing because a spirit of, of error grows out of deception. And we're going to talk about two ways of viewing these three doctrines tonight. I'm giving you that from a historical perspective and a theological perspective. But from the spiritual perspective, I want to challenge you to be sure that as we walk in a world that is increasingly divisive and increasingly hostile and increasingly angry, I want us to be sure that the views we hold are held in love and that we also are, are committed to truth, not just our interpretation of truth. Now, I want to tell you, there's a reason why I believe what I believe. There's a reason why I'm a part of this church and not another church. It, that I don't mean to say, and I think it's dangerous for us to take the approach of, well, there's all kinds of different truth and, you know, is, is sincerity is the key. No, it's not the key. And, and truth matters. What you believe matters. But I, I want you to understand there is a very thin line, almost uh, undiscernible, between um, uh, being strong for our convictions and being a dishonest person.
I remember one time when I was going to seminary, I'd never been to Missouri, well, or never been to that part of Missouri. So the whole way was new roads to me, uh, just about it. And um, that was back during the day before cell phones. It was the day of, of real communication, you know, the CB radios. And um, Terry Wasden was going to school too, and he was going to be my roommate. We were going to look for a place to share an apartment. And most of the time we, we were communicating by CBs and I was trying to figure out where we were. I got in the, the bottom part of Arkansas and it was hard for me to figure out uh, where we were. The map was not a good one. And um, when I finally figured out where we were, we're going along and uh, I remember calling Terry on the radio and I said, well, I've got, I've got good news and bad news. Um, he said, give me the bad news first. I said, okay, we're going the wrong way. He said, what's the good news? I said, we're making incredible time. You know, we're doing great making time, but we were going the wrong way. And um, I, I want to tell you, loved ones, I, 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 I've struggled today with how to say what I'm trying to say. I don't want you to be open to any view. There is a faith that's been once and for all delivered to the saints but we need to be careful uh, that we don't, uh, the, the attitude of arrogance, the attitude of unteachability, the attitude of accusation toward others that don't see the way we are, I believe it's of the devil. And it can even reside in the people of God, even though we would never dream of welcoming something like that. So we've got to be careful. And I hope you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying go out of here and just, it doesn't matter what you believe, just be nice. No. Um, in fact, when uh, you, you read about the church, if I'm remembering correctly, it was the church at Thyatira. One of the Lord's condemnations was what they permitted to be taught in their church by the woman Jezebel. He said, I bring condemnation against you because you should not be permitting this to be taught in your church. So a church is not a place for every platform to be espoused. I don't have a responsibility to hear every view or welcome every ministry. A lot of people think that's what we're here for is to give a platform to every view that blows through town. Uh, but that's not the case at all. Am, am, I, are you, am I making some sense? Corey can straighten it out afterwards if you want to talk to him. So let's talk about these three phrases. The word church or the word Catholic as we talk about the church. The old version of the Apostles' Creed, um, and, and of course it's been translated into scores of languages. Um, the phrase the holy uh, uh, Catholic church is used. Now a lot of times Protestants... Um, have trouble with that because we, we say, well, we're not Catholic, we're Protestant. But the, the word Catholic in and of itself means universal. And the Catholic Church calls itself the Catholic Church because going back into their history, now the Catholic Church says we began with Jesus and then to Peter. Um, we, we don't take that view. We believe that what we know as the Catholic Church today had its beginning um, in, uh, in, in the, the middle of the first millennium in the, in the four or five hundreds, depending on how you interpret a couple of things. But they would say we've always been the universal church. And then there were other people that broke off 
and they became Protestants or what have you. And you got to understand, too, um, I, that division was pretty strong. I'm thankful that I believe the Holy Spirit is healing the division between Catholicism and Protestantism today. But you've got to understand, uh, it's been in my lifetime. You say, yeah, that's a long time. It's been in my lifetime that the Catholic Church made a concession that we were Christian. Before Vatican II, there were, there were Catholics that believed it, and there were Catholics that held to it. But the official position of the church before Vatican II is that we were heretics and we were not part of the church. You know, I was listening to John MacArthur the other day, who is such a gifted man and such a lover of Jesus. And I thought, this man's in his 70s before he can admit that I am a Christian too, because I speak in tongues. For years, he didn't even believe I was a Christian because I spoke in tongues. Well, that was the approach that a lot of church groups take. If you're different than me on certain issues, you can't be saved. So the idea of the Holy Catholic Church was not the idea of Roman versus you know, Byzantine or Roman versus um, Protestantism because Protestantism, um, it, you know, it was, it was centuries away from even coming into existence when the Apostles' Creed was wrote. Was wrote um, just bear with me. I want you to talk good English, what like I do. So... Um, <laughs> Was, was written, but don't be afraid of the Apostles' Creed using the word the Holy Catholic Church. All they were trying to say in, in its origin is that we are part of the worldwide church and there are local congregations, but we're all part of the family of God. It was a very positive, affirming thing. Um, the, that little article, the, speaks of one church. Holy, this, is, this was a powerful word. Remember, in the creed, every word was chosen for specificity and a purpose. Uh, the creeds aren't inspired like scripture, but they were well thought out and words were carefully chosen. The word holy views the church as the sanctifying element of each believer. In other words, um, throughout the history of the church, both Catholicism and Protestantism, as well as Orthodoxy, has viewed the church as an instrument of God's redeeming power. It's what makes us holy. Um, uh, the other day, um, the, the Pope said that he, he, didn't, he didn't like the concept of a personal relationship with Christ. And I, I don't think he was trying to say that we couldn't know Jesus. I think what the Pope was trying to say is that salvation is in the church not on a personal level. Now, that was one of the main reasons for the Reformation. I hope I'm not boring you with this. I hope I'm not going in more detail than you're interested in. But um, um, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, we believe in the sanctifying element uh, of the church. The difference between the two views of Christianity, the two main views of Christianity, is that the Catholic tradition and those that more closely align with the Catholic tradition say that if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be saved, you can. It's through Jesus, but Jesus uses the church. 
That's why in history, the threat of excommunication has been so frightening. Because in the Catholic tradition, if you don't cooperate with the church, we can see to it you don't go to heaven. We'll refuse communion to you. We'll refuse the, um, uh, the elements of grace, uh, the sacraments of the church to you. And um, um, I, I don't agree with that. But I have seen something very ugly rise up in Protestantism. And it is a nobody tells me what to do. And I'm, I, I think that both of them are frightfully wrong. I think, the, I think the idea of if you don't play according to our rules, we will ban you from heaven is a terribly frightful thing. But I also believe that the arrogance and independence of Protestantism has got just as many people in trouble because we've, we've said, well, I have no king but Jesus. But Protestants have, if Catholics have overestimated the importance of the Holy Catholic Church, Protestants have underestimated the importance of the church and the fellowship. I'll tell you this, in 40 years of pastoring, um, the people that have been, um, no, I don't, I don't want to say it that way. I, I, I would have to make so many exceptions to that statement. Let me just withdraw it. Okay, just strike it from the record. I will say this, one of the biggest challenges I've had to face as a pastor has been the idea that you're our spiritual leader, you are our God's gift of the church until I cross someone's politics or I cross someone's preference or I say something with which they don't disagree, uh, don't agree. And then what I have found is that the role of the church and pastor matters very little. I'll just drive across town to another church. I'll just find fellowship in another church. If, if you don't think I should be receiving communion, that's okay, I'll find a church that does. Now, we don't have people like that here, thank God, but a lot of churches have that. And um, one of the things that was behind the idea of the Holy Catholic Church is whether you lean toward Catholicism and its view or you lean toward Protestantism in this view, the fact of the matter is that the scripture teaches that we are called into community. That's the name of our lesson tonight, community. And in that community, we find the sanctifying process of the Holy Spirit at work. You would be hard pressed to find a New Testament believer who is being groomed in holiness and walking in the pleasure of the Lord that has separated themselves from community. Community is very, very important. So Catholic means universal. And, and in some translations, the word apostolic is added to that because um, the, 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 the church is a holy church, is an instrument of holiness, and it bases its teachings on the teachings of the apostle. That would be important to whichever view that you hold to. Okay, So don't be afraid of the word Catholic. Um, but understand that Catholics and Protestants both understand that the church is a sanctifying element that God uses to establish community. Protestantism views it as a loose federation, a loose connection, one that we should walk in voluntarily and in humility and in cooperation other 
other uh, theological systems say you've got to follow the rules of the church or you cannot be a part of the church. And that's where we start running into some snags between the two different groups. But, but both churches, uh, both views value uh, the, the purpose and the role of the church. The second thing that we want to talk about is the communion of saints. Um, some use this phrase as descriptive of church life. Um, a, a, a Protestant would say the, the, uh, the, the communion of the saints is us living together us praying together, us worshiping together, us living out life together. Um, a more liturgical point of view would say it's the, the communion of saints has to do with regular partaking of the Lord's table, following the sacraments, following um, the rules of the church and what have you. Again, it means the same thing, but a Protestant point of view is going to be more loose. It's going to be uh, uh, less structured. And especially when you get into a Pentecostal church like ours, we're not only Protestants who are less structured for the most part, but we are, we are Pentecostals that um, um, are even less structured in our less structure. You know, uh, I, I know growing up, you know, we have an order of service every Sunday and it's just to keep us on track. We know that we've got two services and we know we have to do things systematically and regularly and we know we have to limit our time. Um, but, but in my growing up years, a church that wrote out what was going to happen was a tool of the devil. Because the Holy Spirit never, never changed. I mean, never planned anything. It was all spontaneous, or that's what we were taught. But you know, for all my years, we did the same thing week after week. We knew there was a time to sing. We knew there was a time to pray. There was a time to give testimony. There was a time to receive the offering. The difference is that the liturgical churches wrote it out. Our churches... We thought we were winging it, but we just did it from memory. You know, if you didn't put it on paper, there was no paper trail to follow. If God wanted to kill you, well, I mean, you know, we, we were following the Lord. Um, I remember the first time I went to a, 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 a non-Pentecostal church, and they had the hymns listed up on the board, you know. Today we're going to be doing this hymn, this hymn, and this hymn. And my mother was the, was the worship leader. And I remember I was a zealot, you know, um, um, I, I, was, I was every bit of 14 years old. And I, I was, I understood. I said, this, this is, this is of the world. Uh, mother, you, you lead as the Holy Spirit directs you. You don't have things printed up on a board. And my mother very wisely opened her Bible and showed me a piece of paper. And it said, page 73 page 29, page 116. I said, what's that? She says, that's my board. She said, I keep it in my Bible. She said, do you honestly think I go up to lead worship without having an idea of what I'm going to do? And I said, yes, ma'am, because sometimes you'll say, hey, I just feel like we ought to sing this song and you'll tell, give word to the musicians. It's obvious you're following the Lord. And she said, the Lord is interrupting my plans that I had. Threw me, into, threw me into theological chaos for until she took me to Whataburger after church and I was okay. Um, 
so what I'm what I'm what I hope you see me saying is that whether you are of this stripe or whether you are of this stripe, we still embrace the idea of a church that is universal and is the sanctifying power of God. We might disagree on church politics or church discipline, but we believe that the church fills this role. We believe in the communion of the saints. We believe that living right and doing certain things is an avenue of grace. So don't, don't be critical of someone that views it differently than you do if they are committed to the Lordship of Christ. Um, there, there's there's usually a reason for the way they do things, just like there's a reason for the way we do things. And um, whether you're in a liturgical church or, a, or a, what theologians call a high church or a low church, just, we're a low church, but we don't like being called a low church. But it, it, it means low as far as our organization or our ceremony. It's low down here, very flexible. But what, what we find out is that we believe essentially the same thing. It's just how we live that out. And uh, one of the things that I'd like to see before I go to heaven is a breaking down of some of these barriers. Um, I, I, again, there's a reason that I am Assemblies of God. There's a reason that we do church the way that we do. And I think it makes a difference. But I do not want to call someone who does it differently an enemy. And I think that's one of the things that the Apostles' Creed reminds us of. Then there's the, the forgiveness of sins. Same thing. Some see in the liturgical approach to forgiveness uh, a connection to church life or membership. Um, I, I know some friends that love Jesus with all of their heart, but they had a difference of agreement or something with their church leadership. And the church leadership has proclaimed them unwelcomed and unfit for heaven. Um, I think that church leadership is, is wrong. I think it's profoundly wrong. Um, that church model says we dispense forgiveness. It, they, they're heavy on verses like where Jesus said, whatever you bind you know, on earth is bound in heaven, whatever, you know, even sins, whatever you remit on, on earth is remitted in heaven. And um, again, I'll say it for the 37th time this year, doctrine is built not on a verse, but doctrine is built on all verses. So we have to take that into consideration. And uh, there are churches that love Jesus that basically take this view. Your sins are not forgiven unless we say they are forgiven. And um, you'd, you'd be surprised how much of the Christian world is, in my opinion, a slave to that. But I also know that there is a theological grid behind that. It's not, it's not just a heavy-handed work of the flesh. They really believe that that's the approach of Scripture. Protestants, you see letter B, to varying degrees, see church participation as a means of grace, but we move away from the church as, con as a controlling entity that determines life or damnation. Uh, a high church says we, we are the final 
verdict on whether you go to heaven or hell. And, and they don't literally say that. I mean, they believe God is the final verdict. But they say, we believe we have the mind of Christ on this. Um, a, a church like ours says this is the way you ought to live. We believe the scripture that says, uh, let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. We would never take a position. Some Protestant churches do. It's the popular thing to do right now because we don't want to offend anybody. But we, we would never take the position that you can live any way you want and go to heaven. But we, we, but we do not take a line that says if you cross this line, you're not, you're not a Christian anymore. You're not a believer anymore. We believe that you may be shaming the grace that has redeemed you. We believe that you may be opening yourself to all kinds of discipline from the Lord. And we may believe that you need to get your life right before you ever involve yourself in any kind of church leadership or ministry. But we stop short of saying we, we condemn you. We, we cast you out of the fellowship of the church. But, but we do need to understand that Paul made some pretty strong statements to those Pentecostal churches in the New Testament. For instance, he said, if someone is walking in sin, warn them. He said, um, if they don't listen to you, warn them a second time. And if they don't listen the second time, then count them as an unbeliever. It, now, he wasn't saying excommunicate them. But what he was saying is don't treat them as part of the fellowship as though everything's all right. It's not all right. It's not okay. A lot of marriages don't get worked out because someone, someone chooses their level of repentance. Well, you know, if I, just, if, I, if I do this, everything ought to be okay. But we need to understand if marriages are going to last, you've got to deal with those hard heart issues that go deep. And just because the yelling has stopped doesn't mean the issues have been dealt with. You guys are so quiet tonight. Um, it's probably me, just probably me. Um, you say, Pastor, you're having a birthday. You're just hard of hearing. Maybe that's it. Maybe, I, I don't know. But um, Paul, Paul said, if, if someone walks contrary to what's being taught in the church, work with them. But, if, but there comes a point where you write them off as far as they're not part of the fellowship anymore. Now, you don't ban them from church. You don't, you don't uh, on Sunday morning, you don't stand up and say, well... Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians about this particular sin. I bring to your attention as an example, Corey. Corey is, you know, we don't do that. Um, I, I, we, we also know that Paul made a, it is so serious. It is beyond most of our comprehension. We, we most of us have never seen this in a church setting. And it's a very, very, uh, sobering thought. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, you are allowing someone that's involved in sexual misconduct to continue as though nothing's wrong. He said, I say this to your shame. You shouldn't allow someone to continue in the life of the church with unconfessed sin. Now he wasn't talking about somebody that was struggling with sin. He wasn't talking about somebody that just falls short. That would be all of us. But he used the phrase for leaven. He said, you're, you're puffed up about this. He says, you're arrogant about this. Uh, he says, you are allowing him to say, well, 
this isn't really wrong. And even if it is wrong, a grace covers me. And this is what Paul said. He said, two things need to happen. He said, because this man has been corrected and he's not repented, he says, the first thing that happens is the church needs to repent for allowing this to continue. The second thing that needs to happen, he says, this is an apostolic decision. This is not a decision that, uh, that, you, that you make toward your friends. It's a, it's a very heavy duty leadership decision. But he says, I am writing under the authority of the Holy Spirit, making a judgment as though I were there with you, that this person who is in, in hardcore rebellion, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved. I don't know if we realize how serious that is. He says, I'm telling the leadership that this man will destroy the church if you don't deal with him. And since he is rejecting any kind of correction, this is in Corinthians if you think I'm making it up. Um, in 1 Corinthians, he says, since he has rejected any kind of correction, what I am commanding you to do is pray the hand of God is lifted from him don't cover him any longer. Turn him over to the fruit of his sin in hopes that God, as the enemy begins to play with his life, that he will turn to God and even if it costs him his life, his spirit will be saved. That's a very serious thing. And we don't do that. We would never do that in the church in America because we'd be shut down by the government. We'd be subject to a lawsuit but I'm telling you that was a scriptural principle that the early church lived by and they did it and it worked so well that in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote about the man again. He said, now it worked. Now get your foot off of him. Let him back up or his grief will be destructive instead of redemptive. So loved ones, before we start criticizing other churches and their heavy handedness, we need to understand that in, in our rebellion against heavy handedness, we have taken the seriousness and the sobriety out of the church life of the New Testament. And we have said, just come and anything goes. Come and live any way you want to. Come and doesn't matter if you want to be a part of the church life or not. You can just have a meeting out in the parking lot and you can say whatever you want to say and you can be divisive. And Paul makes it clear. He says people like that need to be set aside. Well, let's, Corey, I'm going to move on because this, this isn't very well received, I don't think here. Um, and I want to say this in defense of some churches that we might view as heavy-handed. Um, I, I, I've got to say this. I think our brothers and sisters, and I do believe they are brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church, um, and we've made our own set of mistakes in, in Pentecostal Church, even the Assemblies of God. I think we've made our own set of mistakes. But I think what the Catholic Church has done wrong is the same thing that ancient Israel did wrong. In Judaism, they elevated the writing of the rabbis to Scripture so that by the time Jesus came along, he said, you have made the words of men uh, more important than the words of God. That didn't begin as what they wanted to accomplish. They wanted to give teeth to the word of God. So you remember I've told you that in the Old Testament, there are um, about 614 laws 
But in Judaism, there's over 6,000 laws and regulations. And we call them fence laws. Fence laws. And um, I know I'm telling old stuff, but for the new, newer family, um, if there was a commandment that was, you know, um, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, which there's a good reason for that, um, that was a commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But what Judaism did is they would make law after law after law after law after law, which was here's how you keep the Sabbath day holy. You can only travel so far on the Sabbath day. And we laugh about some of them. You know, I've told you about you can't eat an egg laid on the Sabbath. You can't scratch a flea on the Sabbath. Um, None of those things were commanded in Scripture. It was fence laws. They said it's so important for us not to break this law that we're going to put barriers all around it so that you can't even get close. And by the time Jesus came, he said all of these fence laws, all of these, an average of 10 laws per commandment in the Old Testament, an average of 10 fence laws on average, he said, you have made this the law of God. And he said, that's not right. Um, um, Jesus said, or in the New Testament, one of the apostles says, you have, you have burdened men, you have, you have loaded men with burdens that neither you nor your fathers have been able to bear. And you remember when Jesus overturned the tables and made the whip, and it, it happened twice. And um, loved ones, it's not because Michonette sold brownies in the sanctuary. That, that's not what he was talking about. When Jesus got angry those two times in the temple, it was because of what they had done that made it hard for people to get to God. People would save for months to bring their temple tax and the offering uh, that they were to give. And they got there and the, the, um, basically the Sadducees would say, I'm sorry, this coin is not accepted. It has to be the temple coin. And they would say, well, we didn't know that. And they said, well, it's okay. You can exchange this for the temple coin. And it'll only cost you 60% interest. And you brought this lamb? Yes, it's the best of our flock. It's the best we have to give. It's without blemish. And they would come up with some, well, this lamb looks tired. This lamb looks haggard from the long trip here. We can't accept this lamb. But you can buy one of ours. And it was a gimmick. Um, the second largest bank in the world in New Testament times, the second largest bank in the world was the temple in Jerusalem because it was a money-making racket. And Jesus always got angry when people do anything that keeps folks from coming to Father. Well, that's, that's the mistake Israel made. I think that many denominations, or I say many, I, I think, um, I, I think that, I think that our brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church have done the same thing. They've taken, they've taken the decrees of the church, and said these things 
need to be followed as well as scripture. But they don't, you know, we say, well, that the word of God's what you follow, not the commands of men. But they come from a grid. They come from a mindset that says, but God committed the scripture to the church and the administration of the scriptures to the church. So when we say that you must follow this as well as the scripture, we're just doing what is our scriptural prerogative. Now, I, I, you say, what are you trying to say, Pastor? I, I'm, I'm trying to tell you this. I feel a lot more understanding of somebody that's operating from that view than somebody that just says, well, what we say is just as important as scripture. I think they're wrong. I think it has put people in bondage. And I think it is something that we should preach against. But again, what I believe God wants us to do is to treat everybody on our side as being on our side. And I think one of the things, you know, there's, there's two things that will happen. Oh, I should have let you have tonight, Corey. There's two things that the scriptures say will happen that will bring worldwide salvation. Two things, and two things only. It's not miracles. It's not great worship. It's not even powerful preaching. As wonderful as those things are, we welcome all of them. But there are two things that will convince the world of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The first one is when Jesus appears, it's described in the book of Zechariah, Israel will see him when he comes, his second coming, his physical descent to planet earth. Israel will be turned, all the Jews will be turned, well, I don't know if it means every single one, but, but uh, the Jewish uh, race will be turned in a day, in a moment, when they see Jesus they will be given a spirit of grace and supplication and they will understand what they have done by their rejection of Jesus and their hearts will be broken. They'll weep for him as for an only child and in a day's time, all Israel shall be saved. I mean, when Jesus shows up, the whole Jewish race will be converted. That's one. The second thing, Jesus said this, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And um, Jesus prayed for the unity to infiltrate the church. And I, 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 I see some good things, but we're a long way from being united. Um, uh, Protestantism has just continued to divide over and over and over again. And in some ways, you know, I wrote in my church history notes that I gave you last year. In some ways, that's a good thing. It ensures our ability to hear God for ourselves. I want to say this. The Reformation emphasized we're saved by faith and grace alone. I think that's the end of your notes. Faith and grace alone. That means we are not saved by the decree of the church. The church is merely an instrument of grace in the hands of God, but by faith and grace alone and not by works. Number two, the Reformation emphasized the authority of Scripture alone. Um, now let me tell you this, the church has a right to give opinions and the church has a right to set a standard 
even a standard higher than Scripture as long as they say this is our standard. For instance, in our church, I, we, if you want to be in leadership in our church, you need to stay away from alcohol. Well, a lot of people turn blue in the face and say, well, you can't prove from Scripture that I can't have a glass of wine. Or, of course we can't. We never try to do that. But we have a standard that's even higher than the scriptural standard. But how can we be justified in that? We say it's our standard. We don't try to put words in God's mouth. We say because of our culture and because of the, the climate in which we live, we want our leadership to stay away from alcohol. But we're not wasting our time trying to tell you that the wine in the New Testament was really grape juice. And we don't waste our time trying to tell you that Jesus, when he drank wine, it was just Kool-Aid, you know. But we, but we lay down a principle. And Paul said this. Paul said on several occasions, this is my determination then. He says, because of this, this is how we will live. He said, remember the traditions that have been laid down to you. Paul made it clear that the church was to follow certain traditions. Even in regard to the, to the issue of femininity in the church. He said, all I can tell you is this is that we have no custom. No custom, no tradition that would side with your view opposed to the apostolic view. So I, I don't know if I'm making sense to you or not tonight. But um, I'm saying that the Apostles' Creed is a call to live in community and in love. We don't have to agree with everyone about everything. There's a difference. Unity is, is not uniformity. Unity is not sameness. Unity means we go together. And when you stop and think about it, the very fabric of our society, marriage between husband and wife, it's based on diversity but united hearts. Um, a, a woman is not a man, and a man is not a woman. And um, in our culture, we do everything we can to make a man a woman and make a woman a man. But we, we have made the mistaken notion of thinking that equality means sameness, and it doesn't mean sameness. Equality is a totally different animal over here to the side when we're talking about equality of value and worth. But unity says, I have a, this purpose, you have that purpose. This is my preference, this is your preference. This is the way I work, this is the way you work. But we do it together for a common purpose. Well, I don't know how to dig myself out of this hole <laughs> except to say, thank God, it's time to go. Um, let me tell you what I want us to do before we go tonight. As always, as always, if you are here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please get with um, one of the um, um, altar teams. In fact, I, I, I know we have altar teams um, that are on alert for Wednesday night. And I would like for any altar ministry teams that are here uh, to be prepared to come to the front in just a second. I would encourage you to get with either me or Pastor Corey or one of the altar teams if you don't know Jesus and we would love to pray with you and let you uh, begin a beautiful walk with Jesus. The other thing that I'd like for us to do, and I know we have our prayer focus, but uh, I, I, I am, uh, I, 
I am just a, a kind of burden tonight. Um, I, I want us to just pray for three things. Um, we, we will dismiss you so that if you can stay and pray, you can do it. But if not, you, if you need to go, that's fine. I want us to pray for our nation. And remember, we've been praying for four things in our nation. We've been praying for lies and liars to be exposed. We've been praying for truth to rise. And in light of that, we're asking for America to know what to do uh, as lies are exposed and as truth is exposed. And the fourth thing is we've been praying for the church to wake up, for the church to stop trying to be politically correct and stop trying to be inoffensive. And um, I've, I've never known a time in, in American history when the church has made as much of an effort to say nothing as the church in general does today. We need the church to wake up. I want you to pray for our nation. I want you to pray for our community. I've just, um, I, I'm stirred in my spirit that we just pray against violence, that we pray for the safety of our children, that um, the societal tension can just be ratcheted down. Um, we, we want to pray the peace of God over our community, the security of God over our community. And um, the third thing, um, I want you to pray for our service Sunday. We, uh, we're, we're digging a little bit deeper into this idea of pleasing the Lord this Sunday. And we just want to pray for that to take place. This is what I'm going to ask you to do. Um, if, if we do have ministry teams, if you guys would just come and position yourself just like you do on Sunday. If you need prayer for something particular, if you'll come to one of the ministry teams, they'll, they'll be glad to pray with you. So ministry teams, if you're here, if you'll move into position, number one. Number two, um, you are welcome to come to the front in the altar area and pray for our nation or uh, to pray for the, the, the safety of our children and, the, uh, and the, 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 the effect of the Lord's presence on our community. Or you can just do it from where you're seated. Um, our, our ministry team is, I don't, I don't think they're still together for tonight. But guys, maybe if we have a CD or something we could play, that would be great. And um, I would encourage you, if you can, even if it's five minutes, to just stay in the presence of the Lord, okay? Uh, Father, uh, ministry teams, if you'll move into position, we're asking for the help of the Holy Spirit. We're asking for the grace of God to help us rise to the occasion tonight as we celebrate the community that you have given us, um, where we enjoy the, the fellowship of the church and the communion of the saints and um, the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that we are the children of God who are called by your name. You have rescued us from the darkness and delivered us from our shameful past and you have given us new life. Help us, Father, to take very seriously this communion and life together. We pray for our community now. We ask for the grace of God to dispel the attack of the enemy um, that would disrupt and cause confusion and chaos and fear and violence, Lord. We pray against this in the name of Jesus. Bless our five minutes or so together as we go in Christ's name. Thank you for being here tonight. If you need to go get your kids, go ahead. But if you're able to pray even for five minutes, we welcome you to do so. God bless you.